Welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. On today's episode, we will take a look back at a time when reggae was so new, so unfamiliar to the American ear, that some people weren't even sure how to pronounce the word reggae. Some people thought it was disco. And I will also shed some light on reggae's influence on American pop and rock and talk a little bit more, too, about why its primary fan base was white. But first, a welcome to the new listeners, and a big thank you to those who are back for more. I have really appreciated hearing from those of you who took the time to drop me a note, and I definitely have appreciated those of you who have signed up to be a patron of the podcast on Patreon. Say that three times fast. This is a labor of love. It is ad-free, and even a couple of bucks a month helps pay the bills. If you want to help, Go to ftr70.com and clink on, clink, click on the Patreon link on any recent episode. If you don't have the cash right now but want to help, leave a five-star review on your podcast app. It really does help other like-minded people find this show in the growing sea of podcasts. It is hard to imagine a time when Three Little Birds was not wafting through the dormitory hallways of American colleges, and then to peek in one of those rooms, you would see uh, a wall absent of a poster of Bob Marley. Did that time exist? It did, because reggae was not really born, so to speak, until 1968, or at least that is the first time that the word showed up in a song, courtesy of Toots and the Maytals and their song, Do the Reggae. Hibbert with the Maytals. You know, I haven't mentioned uh, COVID-19 much at all, if at all, on this podcast, but I'm just going to take a minute here and say, boy, we have lost some musical legends because of the coronavirus, and Toots Hibbert was one of them, sadly. It seems that that he died of COVID-19. He was showing symptoms when he died in the fall of 2020. With the Do the Reggae, um, this was, I think, you could classify safely this as our introduction to the, the term reggae, if not the music itself. I mean, this was not long in calendar years, but a fair distance in terms of practicality from the celebration of Jamaica's time as a British colony coming to an end in 1962. Unfortunately for Jamaicans, that celebration was not going to last very long. Within five years, the Jamaican government would be literally taking a bulldozer to squatter communities and chasing some of the poorest of the poor out of their homes in Kingston. The argument there was that people were not paying for the utilities or paying their land taxes, which was true. 
and that there was a lot of crime in those communities. Also true. Meanwhile, crime was also rampant in the Jamaican political system, which did nothing to help Jamaicans in need of jobs with which they might be able to stop being squatters and perhaps feed their children. It was in that environment that reggae was born around 1968. It is the product of a lot of different musical styles, much of it from the United States, helped along by some powerful radio stations out of Miami whose signals reached Kingston. So if you take some Jamaican mento, which is kind of like their folk or country music, mix in some dance hall swing, like Benny Goodman or Glenn Miller, throw in a heavy dose of American rhythm and blues or early rock, like Fats Domino, add in some insightful lyrics about the violence and political corruption and poverty of Jamaica, and there you have it, reggae. Now, reggae was mainly heard at dances, and the people who went listened to those to whatever the DJ played at those dances. Many Jamaicans could not afford records, and the Jamaican government would not let a lot of reggae on the air because it was too political. If you were in a reggae band, one of the very few places that you could play was the recording studio, not at a concert. If a Jamaican did buy a record, chances are they bought it from Chris Blackwell, a wealthy white guy who started his own record label, Island Records, in 1959. Blackwell is a Brit who grew up in Jamaica and, with quite a bit of financial support from mom and dad, was able to keep Island Records afloat when it wasn't bringing in too much money. Now, this was long before Island signed the likes of U2, Nirvana, Melissa Etheridge, the Cranberries, the label signed most of the top Jamaican singers and bands, which included Jimmy Cliff and Bob Marley and the Whalers. It was Blackwell and his label that was the vehicle for reggae to break into the United States. Now, if Do the Reggae had not made it onto your radar by the late 60s, which was entirely possible, then it's chances are the first taste that you really had of reggae was from Jimmy Cliff's song, Vietnam, which he released in 1969. Paul Simon said that Cliff's Vietnam is one of the best protest songs ever made. that Bob Dylan also thought that this was the best of the Vietnam protest songs, at least up to that point. Uh, My Money is on Ohio, 
by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, which came along after Kent State, Kent State in 1970. Way back in episode nine of this podcast, you can hear more about uh, what I had to say about the Vietnam War protest songs. Vietnam is on Jimmy Cliff's self-titled album from 1969, and you can also hear Paul Simon and Jimmy Cliff sing that song together on Simon's The Concert at Hyde Park album in 2012. Simon told John Landau in an interview for Rolling Stone in 1972 that Mother and Child Reunion was the type of song that he could not do when he was teamed up with Art Garfunkel, and he considered the song a, quote, gamble. More than 10 years before he would find some inspiration for that Grammy-winning album Graceland in the form of this cassette tape of South African street music, Simon told Landau that he liked many types of music more than the type you would hear in America. In this interview, he made a point of saying how much he liked Jamaican music, but how few people were actually into it at the time. Simon and Garfunkel did try a little reggae flavor with Why Don't You Write Me, which is on the 1970 album Bridge Over Troubled Water. Simon said, however, that that song came out sounding like a, quote, bad imitation of Jamaican music or reggae. So he said he was only going to get the sound that he wanted if he went to Jamaica and let the Jamaicans play. At this time, the Jamaican session musicians got about seven bucks a song. It was a notorious racket that totally screwed over the musicians and kept them from getting any royalties. Simon said that he told them to approach their session with him like uh, they were going to play three songs instead of one, which I guess was his way of giving them a bit more money. This is how he described the experience. I played the track. I'd sing the song. We'd write down the chords. Now we know the song. Now I start to play the guitar, a rhythm guitar part, like I do on almost all the stuff, but it was bad. So I sat down and said, you play it. Play what you want. That's the key thing. Let them play whatever they want, and then you change. You go their way. That's how you get that. Just can't believe it's so 
mother and child reunion with instrumentals recorded in Jamaica and vocals in New York released on February 5th, 1972 and made it to number four on the Billboard Hot 100. And for the title, yeah, it is based on a Chinese food menu item. A lot of fans of 70s music and Simon's music know that. And yes, the song was inspired by Simon wondering how he might feel if his wife at the time, Peggy Harper, died and how it would compare to his dog dying. He has spoken of those those things more than once. Other than that, uh, who knows what the song really means? There are a lot of interpretations about it. What we do know is that he was one of the first to make a hit record using kind of the reggae flavor, the reggae sound. Houston, Texas native Johnny Nash did a bit of acting in the late 50s, and he was also on the Arthur Godfrey Talent Scouts radio and TV show. He was known as more of an R&B singer with this gorgeous high tenor when he went to Jamaica in 1968 to record Hold Me Tight. That song made it to number five on the Billboard pop charts, and it definitely has the reggae vibe, but Nash sang it more like a crooner. The reggae beat is more of a background feature than the star of the song. Perhaps more important to reggae's growth in that time is that Nash and Danny Sims, his manager, had started their own record label, Joda Records. They hired a young Jamaican musician named Bob Marley to write songs for Nash. Marley had his own band with Bunny Livingston and Peter Tosh, the Whalers, and they recorded what is now considered a classic in the reggae canon, Stir It Up, in 1967. Nash's label eventually sold Bob Marley's contract to Chris Blackwell's Island Records. Still, Johnny Nash released the album I Can See Clearly Now in 1972, and there are four Marley songs on it, including Stir It Up. However, the song that many considered the first reggae-ish number one in the United States is a song that Nash wrote himself, I Can See Clearly Now. I can see clearly now the rain is gone I can see all obstacles in my way Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind It's gonna be bright things were kind of tough in uh, 1972. That might have been just the song that we needed in 1972. It made it to number one on November 4th, 1972, and it stayed there for a month until a much less optimistic song by The Temptations, Papa Was a Rolling Stone, came along and knocked it out. We can see a bit of 
reggae momentum building in 1972, the same year that the film The Harder They Come was released, and Jimmy Cliff made the title track to that movie's soundtrack a hit. I spoke about the impact of the movie The Harder They Come in episode 28 of this podcast. So check that out if you want to hear more about the movie. The short version is that this is a movie made in Jamaica by Jamaicans about a musician who turns to a life of crime because he can't break through in the music industry. The movie reviews were mixed, but the review of the soundtrack was not. Uh, The soundtrack is still considered a classic. Jimmy Cliff said in 1976 that reggae is the natural music of the 70s. It is the most complete contemporary form of music that fits with the lifestyle that people are trying to live. Maybe, but you would have been hard-pressed to find a reggae song by a true reggae artist on the radio in the United States at any point in the 70s. You could hear more reggae-inspired music. Case in point, I Shot the Sheriff. I Shot the Sheriff was on the Bob Marley and the Wailers' 1973 album, Burnin', their second for Island, but their sixth album overall. They were not newcomers anymore, but there was no place for Bob Marley and the Wailers on American radio. There never would be, really. They not only never had a number one hit that they performed, they never even had a top 40 hit. Bob Marley and the Wailers was not a radio-friendly act until classic rock became a radio genre. The only song that Marley ever wrote that did make it to number one is I Shot the Sheriff. Of course, Eric Clapton is the one who covered that and took it to number one. Now, Eric Clapton had managed to avoid killing himself with heroin and was making a comeback of sorts when he retreated to 461 Ocean Boulevard in South Florida to make a record. The first single released from the album 461 Ocean Boulevard was I Shot the Sheriff. But before you think, oh my gosh, Clapton was such a fan of Marley that he had to record this uh, on this very important album for himself. No, he didn't even want to cover it, and he had to be talked into it by one of the members of his band. Not only that, he really had no idea what it meant. He did know, though, what a number one record was, which is what he had with I Shot the Sheriff. I Shot the Sheriff
I Shot the Sheriff, written by Bob Marley, performed by Eric Clapton. It went to number one in September 1974. It shared the top five of the Billboard chart with Having My Baby by Paul Anka, which had been number one, Rock Me Gently by Andy Kim, I'm Leaving It All Up to You by Donnie and Marie, and Can't Get Enough of Your Love, Babe by Barry White. How 70s is that? Clapton did ask Marley, by the way, what the lyrics mean, and Clapton said that Marley wouldn't say, but he also said he could not understand him, so maybe he did say, and Eric missed it. In later years, Marley said he did want to write a song about shooting the police, but figured it would get him in trouble, so he wrote this instead and said it was a song about justice. His former girlfriend, Esther Anderson, said it was a song about birth control. Marley didn't like that she used it. Every time I plant the seed, he said, kill it before it grow. Yeah, maybe. I can see that. It did bother Marley that his American audience was mostly white. Perhaps at least part of the answer to this uh, can be found in an article from music writer Roger Steffens, full disclosure, a white guy. This is what he wrote. American Blacks, Marley's most coveted audience, remained impervious to him and his message throughout the 70s. They were under the sway of elaborately costumed funk and disco and seemed determined to avoid any reminder of their own African roots, fearful of the stigma of primitism. This was echoed by Murray Elias, who was known as Jaw Fish to those who listened to his New York radio show in the 70s, which featured Jamaican music. I think it was the only show that did. After that, uh, Elias became a music industry executive, and he remained this champion of reggae music. He said in an interview for Spin Magazine in 1990 that black radio stayed away from reggae because it sounded too primitive when compared to American rhythm and blues. That began to change in 1985 with what he called computer reggae, which sounded more like hip-hop. Elias pointed out that you were more likely to hear Bob Marley songs on a rock station, which, by the way, is exactly what Chris Blackwell was going for. He told Marley he was not going to get played on black radio stations, so he was going to market him as a rock star. In fact, Marley's American booking agent, Stu Weintraub, always saw Marley as a rock star, emphasis on star, and would not let the Whalers open for any band. Weintraub even said no to the Rolling Stones. He said, Marley, headliner only, which takes me back to that essay by Roger Stephens. He wrote about his experience of seeing Marley live for the first time in 1975 at a show promoted by the legendary Bill Graham at the Paramount Theater in Oakland, California. Stephen said that the crowd, quote, gasped at the bizarre appearance of Marley in his street clothes and dreads and roared in approval when he whipped the dreads around. Of the lyrics to Marley's Talkin' Blues, I feel like bombing a church now that you know the preacher is lying, so who's going to stay at home? when the freedom fighters are fighting. Steffens wrote, this was something other than boogie till your Coke spoon falls off your neck music. A review by Juan Rodriguez in a Montreal newspaper in 1976 said something kind of similar. White pop music bands who feel 
alienated from the badass soul scene with its speedy rhythms and heroinized subculture, reggae offers a laid-back sense of rhythm that is totally missing from both mainstream and heavy soft rock. Now, heroinized seems problematic. That's me saying that, but I get the point. This is the music that is not threatening to white people. You don't have to know how to dance to it, but it feels more substantial than, say, a John Denver song. Of course, we cannot dismiss the ever-present ganja and the appealing of mellowing out with some reggae in the background. While marijuana is a sacred herb to Rastafarians, it is a recreational accessory to many of the young white folks who were drawn to reggae. The two go hand in hand. Ed McCormick traveled to Kingston to write, uh, to interview, I should say, Bob Marley for Rolling Stone in 1976. This was as Marley was coming into international stardom. And McCormick wrote, when I first encountered Bob Marley, he was sitting in an upstairs windowsill in his house on Hope Road, smoking the inevitable spliff and studying the brilliant tropic treetops deep in herbal meditation. In fact, Marley was so whacked out of his skull that it was possible to study him in perfect Nubian carving profile for several seconds before it even dawned on him that he had company. 1976 was the same year that former whaler Peter Tosh made the album Legalize It, which for reggae purists is the real thing. Tosh left the Whalers in 1973. He was unhappy that Chris Blackwell would not let him put out a solo album, and there were rumblings about the attention going to Marley. Some of that bitterness was from Tosh's point of view due to Marley being lighter-skinned than he was. Many years later, Colin Grant wrote a book about the Whalers, and he said in an NPR interview, even though Jamaica is predominantly a black country, there is a brown and white elite, and I think people took sides and aligned themselves fundamentally with one side or another. Peter aligned himself fundamentally in the black camp. Since Chris Blackwell would not fund his solo album, Tosh got a marijuana dealer to give him the money for Legalize It, although the dealer initially was not too happy about the name of the album. Now, Tosh was a political activist. He did not just protest police brutality because of articles he read. He experienced it firsthand. And even though the work of America's civil rights leaders, the Dr. King's and Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm X, were banned in Jamaica, you can see that it influenced him. The title track to legalize it is just what you would think it is. It is a song about legalizing marijuana. But it and the album as a whole stood for those who chose to take issue with Marley and the direction he was going. It stood as a contrast for that direction that Marley was going. Here is Peter Tosh's Ode to Marijuana, Legalize It. Oh, 
Of course, the Jamaican government tried to get this record banned, but Jamaicans found a way to to buy it anyway. Tosh also took out an ad in a Jamaican newspaper and printed the lyrics uh, within the ad. John Marlowe, a music critic writing for the Miami News, wrote of Tosh when Legalize It hit the U.S., Reggae is not the next big thing. Peter Tosh is not the next big thing. But legalize it like Coca-Cola is the real thing, which is a hell of a lot more important these days than being the next big thing. Well, it had been told for about three or four years by this point by any magazine or paper that wrote about music that Bob Marley and the Wailers were the next big thing. And by music history standards, they were. We have the benefit of hindsight. The commercial success that may have been predicted for them really did not materialize in that way of, say, maybe like the Rolling Stones or even the Eagles. Roots Rock Reggae is the highest charting single that Bob Marley and the Wailers ever had. It topped out at number 51 in 1976. The album it's on, Rasta Man Vibration, did better. It made it to number eight, which is pretty damn good for a band that had very little radio play. Sampling the reviews of the record show a theme. Words like polished or slick pop up a lot, but with the hope that it would lead to Marley selling more records. Judge for yourself, here is the more slick and polished Roots Rock Reggae. In 1977, Marley released the album Exodus, which is loaded with Marley classics. Three Little Birds, Jammin', One Love, the title track Exodus. And so the next logical question is, how 
did these songs not become top 40 hits? How did roots rock reggae not serve as a springboard for these songs? Well, my theory on this is very simple. Disco. Disco was king, not just on the dance floor, but on the radio in 1977. It came over the music industry like a tidal wave, and reggae did not stand much of a chance. I also wonder if most Americans were into the politics of Marley's music. We were a weary nation in 1976, 1977, which was part of the disco fuel, by the way. Some may have just tuned it out completely and didn't engage with that part of the music. Marley said of the critics and fans who tried to compare him to Mick Jagger that they were not listening to what he was saying. He said the message is not the same, and reggae is not the twist. No. Then and now, if you play a song like Concrete Jungle, you might bob your head and sway a little bit, but do you hear no chains around my feet, but I'm not free? The question of authenticity plagued reggae in the 70s in a way it plagued rock in the 80s, and maybe even the way it plagued folk music in the 60s, especially after Dylan went electric. Purists are quick to dismiss that which is popular because it is too popular. And if it is too popular, then it must be watered down. Ken Williams, who is a native of Jamaica, uh, he eventually moved to the United States and became involved in radio and he owned a nightclub and he was the MC at Marley's live shows in America. He said in 1975 that he did not think that reggae could compete with the moogs and the strings, meaning that reggae did not have the synthesizers and orchestral arrangements that were such an integral part of rock and pop in the 70s. So reggae had arrangement issues. I think that even though Bob Marley was marketed as a rock star, he, and by default reggae, was not rock enough for the radio. And maybe that's why you are more likely to hear reggae-inspired rock more rock than reggae on the radio than actual reggae. Songs like Watching the Detectives by Elvis Costello and the Attractions or Roxanne by The Police. At times, it seemed like Sting seemed to get a bit testy when someone would suggest that Roxanne sounded like reggae. Other times, he would admit that what anyone could hear, um, that it is reggae-influenced. Sting said that Roxanne is a tango, and you can hear that too. Roxanne is inspired by Sting watching the prostitutes walking along the streets of Paris in 1977, and he imagined a scenario in which he was in love with one of them. The BBC banned Roxanne because of its subject matter, but after the police began to play some live shows in the United States, Andy Summers said that a radio station in Texas started playing the song, and well... The police were on their way. Listen for Stuart Copeland's drum pattern. This is what gives Roxanne its reggae rhythm. the night. 
released in 1978 and did not chart in the United States until 1982, but it was the song that gave the police their big break. It is, of course, one of their signature songs, and it is in the Grammy Hall of Fame. It was named uh, one of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and it is in the Rolling Stone list of top 500 rock songs of all times. It is not just the lyrics, of course. It's the arrangement and the mix of reggae, punk, and rock. Tim Breham is in the midst of writing a very interesting series of articles for the website StereoGum. He is making his way through every number one single since 1958, which you should definitely check out if you are interested in pop chart history. He argues that the first true reggae hit single in the United States did not come until 1980. Jamaican musician John Holt had a vocal group called the Paragons, that recorded his song, The Tide is High, in 1967. I'll bet this sounds a little familiar to you. that, just maybe not like that. Uh, John Holt recorded more than 40 albums before he died in 2014, and he's considered a legend in reggae. We're talking about a guy who performed with the London Symphony Orchestra kind of legend. Debbie Harry heard that song on a compilation tape that she got in London, London and decided that she had to record it. Here is Blondie's number one cover of The Tide is High.
from the 1980 album Auto American, much trashed by Rolling Stone magazine, but much beloved by Gen Xers. The single hit number one in January 1981. Brehan wrote, nobody would confuse Blondie's record with an actual Jamaican reggae track, but it's still a cool attempt to engage with the genre on its own terms. I think you could make the same case that Blondie was doing something similar with Rapture and Rap and Heart of Glass with Disco. Reggae's influence on rock and pop music continued to grow into the 1980s and 90s, even after Marley's death from skin cancer in 1981. One thing that we have learned together in this examination of 70s music is that all music is the product of that which came before it and it evolves into new forms. It, it never really dies. The fact that I would wager that every one of you listening to this now knows at least one Bob Marley song, and you do not need an explanation for what reggae is, is a testament to what many of its champions in the 70s understood about it, even if it was not completely evident to everyone at the time. While Bob Marley is not all there is to reggae, he was and is the face of it. There is a reason that he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame way back in 1994. It was like inducting reggae and acknowledging the historical importance of it. This is what Bono said in Marley's induction speech. Rock and roll loves its juvenilia, its caricatures, its cartoons the protest singer, the pop star, the sex god, your mature messiah types. We love the extremes and we're expected to choose the mud of the blues or the oxygen of gospel, the hellhounds on our trail or the band of angels. Well, Bob Marley didn't choose or walk down the middle. He raced to the edges, embracing all extremes, creating a oneness, his oneness one love. Reggae is not just one thing. It is many styles. It is many messages. To try to classify it as one thing is to miss the point. And to dismiss its place in rock and pop history is to have an incomplete history. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. If you like the show, please tell someone. You can also follow the show on Facebook or Instagram at 70s Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, everyone.